Good morning. Just got back a couple days ago from the uh, north woods of Wisconsin with our uh, high school students, and it's not that much warmer down here than it was up there, so kind of eager for that to let up a little bit. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us Hebrews 9 in particular as we prepare to look at it again this morning. We ask that uh, by your spirit you would help us. Help me as I speak. Help my sisters as they listen and help us all as we attend to what you have said and through what you have said attend to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. On July 2nd, 1881, President James Garfield was shot. But he didn't die until 80 days later. He actually fought for his life uh, until September. And the irony and the tragedy of Garfield's death was that the actual wound from the bullet, the damage done by the assassin's bullet, was totally non-lethal. It missed all of his major organs, didn't hit an artery. Uh, One present-day professor of surgery says that Garfield had such a non-lethal wound. In today's world, he would have gone home in a matter of two or three days. So what went wrong? Well, Basically, Garfield's treatment killed him. In those days, in the early 1880s, American doctors had not yet bought into the very new theory that wounds needed to be protected from infection. And so the many medical experts that inspected Garfield and tried to help him, they would inspect his wound with unsterile instruments. They would even use their bare hands. And so the assassin of Garfield, who was later executed, although he was quite unstable, he did say this accurately. He said, yes, I shot him, but his doctors killed him. The treatment that we pursue matters. There are treatments that are wonderfully effective, and there are treatments that are not. So as I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, this passage will make the case that the remedy for sin is none other than the death of Jesus Christ, that there is no other remedy, that there is no other treatment that will work. So this morning we're going to look at verses 11 through 28. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Let's, let's read this. Follow along as I read. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of, the, of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This passage shows us that the death of Christ is totally sufficient. It is totally sufficient as a remedy for our sin problem, and nothing else is. That is what the writer to the Hebrews was seeking to convince his readers of. That is what I hope to convince you of this morning that the death of Christ is a totally sufficient remedy for our sin problem and nothing else is. The way the writer to the Hebrews makes this case is he shows us in this passage four ways, four aspects in which the death of Christ is a superior sacrifice, a superior remedy for sin to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So you'll see here, as you've seen throughout Hebrews thus far, that he's constantly making comparisons, showing how Christ is better. So that's how we'll look at this passage. Four ways in which the death of Christ is superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And once we've done that, once we've worked through the text, looking in these four 
sections, we'll turn to consider how we should respond. So first, the death of Christ is a better sacrifice. The death of Christ is a better sacrifice. And this is seen in verses 11 through 14. In particular, look with me at verses 13 and 14. He writes, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the logic of these verses is an argument from lesser to greater, which is if if this relatively weaker entity can accomplish X, then it follows that the stronger entity can accomplish more than X. So the comparison here is between the sacrifices, the blood of goats and bulls and other animals contrasted with the blood of Christ. And the point that the author of Hebrews is making is there was a kind of effectiveness to those Old Testament sacrifices. Here, he refers to it as purifying the flesh or the body. But he says, Christ's blood does much more than that. It actually penetrates to the level of our conscience and cleanses our very conscience. So, there's two words we need to understand here that make sure that we're, we're getting this. The first one is blood, and the second one is conscience. Uh, I mentioned a few min- minutes ago that we just got back from a retreat. And on this retreat, we uh, bring along a lot of kids who don't go to our church, some who don't go to any church. And one of the uh, sessions, the speaker uh, shared the gospel. And in his particular presentation, he ended up talking a lot about blood, about how blood was, was necessary, how that's true throughout the whole Bible. It was, it was a great message. Uh, but afterwards, there were several students that I knew about who were totally weirded out by this. Like, why is he talking so much about blood? That's a fair question, right? Why do we Christians uh, sing about the power of the blood or being washed in the blood? What do we mean by that? What are we talking about? Well, what we don't mean is that there's some sort of magical quality that's transmitted through the red fluid flowing through Jesus' veins. That's not the idea. This is not a magical conception of blood. What, what blood means in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments, blood is a way of referring to the sacrifice of a life, the giving up, the offering, the loss of life in sacrifice. That, that's, how, that's what blood was used to refer to. So the reference here is to Christ's sacrifice, his offering up of himself. And so the point being made is not a comparison of, of blood per se, but a comparison of who was sacrificed. What was the quality of the, the person or animal sacrificed? And the, the clear takeaway is that the one who was sacrificed on the cross is far superior to the countless animals that were sacrificed on the altar of the tabernacle and the temple. Second word we want to make sure that we're clear on is conscience. 
That, that word can be used a number of different ways. Uh, here in the book of Hebrews, I found this helpful explanation from uh, one New Testament scholar. Uh, the conscience, as the writer to the Hebrews often uses it, is directed toward God and embraces the whole person in his relation to God. And the way that it's used in Hebrews is almost always negative, meaning this. He writes, it is the uneasy conscience with its internal witness that defilement extends to the heart and mind. So in other words, the way this writer uses the word conscience is to refer to that inward faculty that accuses us, that testifies against us before a holy God that we have fallen short of his holiness, of his moral perfections. The, the conception of verse 14 is that sin is defilement. Maybe you've seen this already in, in your reading of the Bible. The Bible can look at the same thing from a number of different angles. And one way of looking at sin is as, as defilement, as something that makes dirty. And so the idea here is that our problem is we have, because of our sin, a dirty or defiled conscience that we know ourselves to be defiled in such a way that we are unable and unworthy to enter into God's presence or even enter into his service. And that is the problem of which Christ's death is the remedy in verse 14. He purifies our conscience with his death so that we can serve the living God. That's the first way the writer to the Hebrews presents the superiority of Christ's death. The death of Christ is a superior sacrifice. Second, the death of Christ establishes a new covenant. The death of Christ establishes a new covenant. This is in verses 15 through 22. And you can see, starting in the very beginning of verse 15, this is building on what he just said. Verse 15 starts with the word, therefore. So, building on what was just said in verses 11 through 14 about a superior sacrifice, he says, it follows that because a superior sacrifice has been made, a superior covenant has now come into effect. Look at the rest of verse 15 with me. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So that, that verse, that is the point of this paragraph of verses 15 through 22. There he states this idea that the death of Christ, because it has occurred, a new covenant has been established and Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. Now what he does in verses 16 through 22 is he backs that up. He supports that with a couple of different arguments. And basically, verses 16 through 22 back up the statement of verse 15 by showing that this is consistent with the way covenants work. So if you look at verse 16 and 17, uh, there's actually some debate about what kind of covenant he's thinking of, what kind of covenant he's referring to in verses 16 and 17. But, but however we understand the specific kind of covenant in view, the, the way this is functioning in the argument is clear enough. He's saying uh, there are covenants that require a death in order to go into effect. 
And then what's definitely clear is in 18 through 22, he says, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with his people on Mount Sinai, that covenant definitely required a death to go into effect. And he talks about all the different ways that blood is a part of ratifying the covenant and in the maintenance of the covenant. And so he makes this summary statement in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, that is the the law of Moses, the, the covenant between God and Israel that Moses was the mediator of, under that law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we know from Hebrews 8 that he's already made the point that the Old Testament itself testifies to the fact that a new covenant is needed, that the old covenant was never intended to be permanent. Here, the point is that Christ in his death has brought that new covenant into effect. He has become the mediator of this new covenant by his death. And this is so important for us, this idea of a new covenant, because tiny, sinful creatures like us, we need a covenant in order to be safe with God, in order to know God. So a covenant, one way to think about a covenant, is it's a set of promises, binding promises that create a relationship. And and those promises structure that relationship. So a, a covenant can be thought of as a set of promises that are binding that creates a relationship and structures that relationship. So in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the, the formula, the summary statement that captures the essence of God's covenant with his people is some variation of this. I, God speaking, I will be their God and they will be my people. So that is the great kindness of God in the history of redemption that although he is perfect and transcendent and above us and we are small and tiny and sinful, he kindly welcomes us and binds himself to us with promises. He makes a covenant with his people. And this covenant, this new covenant brought into effect by the death of Jesus, this is the covenant God's people had been waiting for. This is the final one. This is the one that we need. And so the death of Christ brings us into a relationship with God. It is because His death has occurred for transgressions, as it says in verse 15. It's because our sins have been dealt with that we can enter into this relationship where we can take refuge in God, where He can be our God and we can be His people. It's only because of Jesus' death that that is possible. And now that Jesus has come, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrifices are no longer needed. They no longer have any effect. They no longer do anything because what they referred to, what they pointed to has now come. So the death of Christ is a better sacrifice. It establishes a new covenant. And now third, the death of Christ is brought to a better temple. The death of Christ is brought to a better temple. And we see this in verse 
23 and verse 24. Let's read these again. Verse 23, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So we'll stop there. The death of Christ is brought to a better temple. So the contrast here is between two holy places, two holy of holies, as the Old Testament refers to the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle or the temple. Unlike the Old Covenant, where the priest would make sacrifices in front of the holy of holies, a physical tent or later a structure, and then once a year they would enter in on the basis of those sacrifices. Unlike that whole arrangement, he's saying here, Jesus went to the real holy of holies, the the heavens, God's dwelling place, which it turns out, he says here, the, the physical holy of holies was merely a copy or a pointer, a signpost saying, this is something of what God's presence is like. Jesus didn't go to the copy. He went into the original with his sacrifice. And it's not that Jesus died in heaven. We, we know that he died here on earth. But the idea, it seems to me, of verse 24 is that Jesus, after his death, through his resurrection and his ascension, he goes into the Father's presence on our behalf on the basis of the sacrifice he made. So he's before the Father, verse 24 says, on our behalf. And the, the context seems to indicate that he's in his presence on our behalf on the basis of what he's already done. This is how Charles Wesley put it in one of his hymns. Talking about Christ, he says, He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. So we already know from Hebrews that Jesus is a great high priest because of his intercession. Hebrews 9 is adding to that picture this crucial piece that he serves as a high priest forever and always on the basis of this sacrifice that he made for us, taking our place for our sins. So the death of Christ is a a superior, a better sacrifice. It establishes a new covenant. It is brought to a better temple. And now fourth, the death of Christ is eternally effective. The death of Christ is eternally effective. Look with me in the middle of verse 26. He says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the point he's making here is that you can tell 
Jesus' sacrifice is better than all those that came before because he only had to do it once. It was so powerful. It was so effective. It was so final that one time was all that was needed. And so he, he says, looking to the future in verse 28, he says, this sacrifice is so sufficient, so effective, so enough to deal with the sin of sinful humanity that when Christ comes again, he won't have to do anything else to add to it. He won't need to die again. He won't need to sort of finish that up. He's coming again to rescue those who have already been rescued by his death. So we get this picture in verses 25 through 28 of an eternally effective sacrifice that never needs to be repeated, that is totally and absolutely sufficient. So the death of Christ is a better sacrifice. It establishes a new covenant. It's brought into a better temple, and it is eternally effective. So in all these ways, Hebrews 9, 11 through 28 is seeking to convince us that this sacrifice is superior. And in making that case, there's a, there's a parallel argument that's implied all along the way, which is that this sacrifice that is so superior is sufficient. It is enough. It has done the job. Think about how all four of these sections work. Because the death of Jesus is a superior sacrifice, because it has established a new covenant, because it is brought into God's presence, into a better temple, because it is eternally effective, on the basis of all these points of superiority, we have confidence, even we who are not tempted to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, we are given confidence that this one sacrifice is adequate. It is more than adequate. It is sufficient for our sin. The death of Christ is a totally sufficient remedy for our sin problem and nothing else is. As we think about what to do with that, how to, how to apply that, I want to suggest that there are at least two ways that we often miss this. Two pitfalls that we can fall into by which we fail to fully believe in the sufficiency and the superiority of Christ's death. And so the, the, the answer is to take this message, this message of the cross, and believe it again every day to avoid these pitfalls. So here they are. Pitfall number one. We can often believe that the death of Christ is not a powerful enough remedy for my sin. Let me say that again. We can often believe that the death of Christ is not a powerful enough remedy for my sin. Think about those shortcomings, those moral failures, those sins of yours that make you most disappointed with yourself. Think about those sins that churn up the deepest, the sharpest shame. 
What we often do with those failures is we seek to add additional remedies to what Christ has already done. So, for example, let's say today, as the, as the day is winding to an end, you realize that you yelled at your kids. You yelled at your kids, you were impatient, you were short, and you feel bad about it. And so what, what we often do is we think, I will make this up tomorrow by being patient, by doing a better job. I'll do better tomorrow as if, not that we would ever say this, but as if in our heart we're thinking that will contribute something to my cleansing. That will do something to cover and deal with and atone for what I did today. Or we think, we recognize perhaps, wow, I have been cold towards God. I have felt numb towards him. I have been unmoved by this God that I say I worship and trust and believe in. And so what we often do is we think, okay, I will make that up by serving him that much more. I will take on new volunteer opportunities, or I will prove that I really am a good Christian by reading my Bible that much more diligently. So we, we come up with these ways to add to Christ's death as if we needed other remedies. Or maybe sometimes the way you know that you're not believing that the cross is powerful enough for your sin is you just live in that shame and guilt. We just carry it around. We just sit and stew in this feeling of being worthless or dirty or undeserving. And we might not know what to do with that or where to take it, but we know that we deserve it. In all of these ways, what we're saying, whether we realize it or not, is we're saying that that death of Christ that I believe in, that I sing about, that I want people to believe in themselves, I don't actually believe right now that that's powerful enough to deal with my sin, with today's sin. That's pitfall number one. Pitfall number two is believing that my sin is not bad enough to need such a powerful remedy. Sometimes we can believe that my sin is not so bad that it really needs such a powerful remedy as the death of God's son. If you are living an outwardly moral life, staying married to your husband, being kind to your neighbors, being honest at work, it is very easy to start to think that you are not that bad. It, it's very easy to even sing songs about grace and to, to even speak to people about being a sinner saved by grace, but to not actually experience yourself as someone who needs the death of Jesus in order to be right with God. We can start to feel as if God is somewhat entitled, I'm sorry, I am somewhat entitled to God's acceptance because I kind of do a lot for him. I've actually grown a lot since I first became a Christian. And my sins, although they're there, they're pretty small. They're pretty invisible. They're, they're pretty minor compared to what I used to do or compared to what I see other people doing. And so the cross starts to look small because our sin feels small. In one of his sermons, Martin Luther described this this way. 
He said, people wish to comfort themselves with the thought that God is merciful to sinners, and yet they refuse to be thought of as sinners. These people can indeed say they are poor sinners, but do not want anyone to regard it as true. So what do we do with these two pitfalls? On the one hand, we can feel, we can believe that the death of Christ is not a powerful enough remedy for my sin, for today's sin. Or in the same day, in the same hour, we can believe that my sin is not bad enough to really need such a powerful remedy as this. The answer to both of these is, is essentially the same thing. It's to preach this cross to yourself. It's to run to Jesus again today. Not to get saved again today, but to, to throw yourself on him for today's sins, to trust him for today's shortcomings, to, to reach out to Jesus for grace for today. Trusting that his death and his resurrection, that these are enough. It's trusting that the cross teaches us two things, at least. The cross teaches us in new ways the unimaginable dimensions of God's love for us. We, we need to let the cross teach us those lessons again and again and expand our horizons in that way. And we also need to let the cross teach us the shocking depths of our own wickedness and let it guide us into a more accurate understanding of ourselves, secure in the knowledge that those lessons about the love of God are still true for us. Here's Martin Luther again from that same sermon. We must say two things, two utterances. I am a sinner and God be merciful unto me. It is the most difficult of all to say these two sentences at the same time from the heart. Hence, it is the most wonderful thing on earth that a man may have the grace truly to know himself as a sinner and yet turn round and cast away all thoughts of God's wrath and hold to mere grace. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today for the grace to say both of these things. To acknowledge and truly believe that we are sinners, that we need a crucified Messiah for our sin. And to say at the same time with confidence, God, be merciful to me on the basis of this sacrifice. Guard us from all the ways that we run from this, all the ways that we hide from this, the ways that we are enamored with lesser remedies and the ways that we feel ourselves to be above this remedy. Oh God, guide us into the joy and the freedom of trusting in such a Savior as this. 
We love you and we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.